Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Wouldn't it be cool if there was a Netflix for finance? Well, there is. It's called Real Vision, and it gives you unprecedented access to some of the most respected names in finance. Watch interviews with legends like Kyle Bass, Jeff Gunlock, Stanley Drunkenmiller, and many, many more. If you want to be part of the Real Vision revolution, visit realvision.com slash WSO. Hello and welcome to Moving Up, a podcast about secrets to success, struggles along the way, and life in general. I'm your host, Alex Grodnick. On the pod today, Peter from Mucker Ventures in Los Angeles. Peter's built a few different businesses in Asia and has had a pretty incredible career. How and why? He's accomplished everything he has just ahead. Money 2020 is this week. It's the big fintech conference in Vegas. We went last year just as we were starting the company and didn't really know very much at all. It's crazy how much we've learned in the last year about the industry, our business, and just our network. Last year, we didn't know anything, but we did sneak into some great parties and pretended to know. This year, we got invited to the parties. We have 14 meetings with investors on Monday and Tuesday. Not going to be much time to hear any of the presentations, but that's what we wanted. This entire week is all about hustling. I've been sending emails for the past month, trying to get invites to parties and meetings with investors. Yesterday, someone I emailed replied, decent cold email, exclamation, and then a link to his Calendly. Here's what I said in the email. Hey, John, apologies for the cold email. I feel like the conference and being part of the Startup Academy makes this slightly less cold, smiley face emoji. Also, we both went to Lehigh. Anyway, I wanted to see if we could grab a few minutes with you next week. I would love to get your thoughts on my startup. Then one sentence on Pay Club, and then let me know if you have a few minutes to meet next week. Simple. It's short, to the point, says I know something about him, and is a pretty simple ask. So that's it. I'm so excited for this week. Outside of our 14 investor meetings, who knows what will happen? Hoping for some of that money 2020 magic. If you want to get a job on Wall Street, your resume, it better be perfect. Let the pros here at Wall Street Oasis make sure that it is. Check out the resume review service. All of their reviewers are working in the industry, and they actually look at resumes of candidates. Pay them so that yours looks perfect. I'm sitting here with Peter Brock. Peter, thanks so much for coming to my office today, for chatting with me. I've been really looking forward to speaking with you. My pleasure. Great to be here. Yeah, so uh, you're a pretty prominent venture capitalist in Los Angeles, but you've spent a lot of your life abroad, outside of Los Angeles, working for big companies, taking companies public, starting companies. So I'd love to hear how you got your start, where this all began. Were you born a little businessman, entrepreneur, or was that something you accumulated along the way? Uh, 
Good question. I, I think, actually, I, I think I did grow up with a bit of entrepreneurship baked in, um, in that when I was in hmm, grade school, I started out uh, finding little schemes where I could make money alongside uh, just going to school. And so the first thing, first job was a paper route. Um, but that became sort of lead gen for me for other businesses that I ended up launching. Um, I was probably 10 years old, maybe 11, when I started. Uh, I, I realized I had a pretty good distribution network around my neighborhood and a few other uh, close by neighborhoods. Um, and, uh, and the primary customers were housewives um, who I figured if they're actually paying me to, to deliver their newspapers, maybe they'll pay me to bring them other stuff too. Um, so I, uh, I found um, seeds for, for flowers and, um, and gardens and herb gardens, and I brought seeds around to these, uh, to these housewives in the neighborhood and uh, ended up making a ton more money uh, with that business than I ever did with the, with the paper route business. But I kept both going alongside, and then I was doing odd jobs for them. Um, and then when I was about 15, I wasn't uh, doing the, the paper delivery anymore, but um, I ended up taking the franchise for a home painting company called College Pro Painters, um, where I ended up hiring a bunch of other kids in town to paint houses. Um, and that made me all of my sort of side money um, through high school, which was great. And I did that in the summer times only, but it sort of gave me all, all you know pocket money for for school. I love it. You know, this is a common story of entrepreneurs just starting things from a very young age. And it's cool because you're not. I mean, yes, you wanted some walking around money, but like you're not really driven by the same things that probably drive like you when you're an adult. You're just kind of looking to, to do and create. And so it's at a very basic level that you're able to do that. So I, I love thinking about how that works um, when you're especially young and starting businesses. So you're the neighborhood entrepreneur. You're selling everything you can get your hands on. Um, oh, and like washing cars, mowing lawns, cleaning yeah. out basements and garages and all of that stuff. And But I loved the, you're right, I loved the aspect of like, crafting the flyers that I would then, you know, nail to the telephone posts and, and put in people's mailboxes. Um, and uh, I loved that process, the marketing process of this to see, you know, if I could actually get some business out of it. Right. Yeah. I love hearing this. I was the same way. I had a car wash and we had locations at, at all three country clubs in my town and we'd wash people's cars as, as they played golf. And like, I was on this path to, I mean, I had so many businesses, but then as soon as I went to college, they kind of, all those businesses started to slow down and I got other interests and I, I stopped kind of doing what I felt like was true to myself. And I got more into working for other people and going after prestigious jobs. What was your path? So um, when I was in high school, I kind of had a, a, an inkling of what I wanted to do um, when I grew up. Um, and I was always fascinated with the media business. I loved watching TV. I was kind of brought up on, on great TV. And, and, um, and uh, I wanted to be 
in the television business. So when I was um, at an age where it didn't look funny for me to be knocking on corporate doors, I was probably about 17, 18. It was probably like the summer of my junior year in high school. Um, I started knocking on doors literally and, um, and going to offices of um, relatively new at the time cable TV companies. Um, and there was one in particular um, called Manhattan Cable TV, which later became Time Warner Cable, um, where I knew I wanted to get some experience. And um, so I went into New York. I grew up not far from New York um, and was, you know, asking for an unpaid internship for the this, this summer before I graduated from high school. And, um, and I was, uh, I got that unpaid internship. It wasn't very hard because they said, great, you know, it's free. So sure, come to work for us. Um, and, uh, and I started in the marketing department of Manhattan Cable TV, um, marketing HBO and ESPN and all of the channels that they were offering to residents of Manhattan. That's great. So you're able to get this internship before you even go to college. It's cool to have identified that, what you want. I mean, that's a huge leg up to actually identify something that you want to do and you did it. And did you like it? I loved it. Loved it, it was great. And um, I, me- I remember we were um, one of the projects that that company, that that, that cable operator was um, beta testing at the time was video on demand. Um, and, uh, and back then, because this was like, late 80s, yeah, it was late 80s, um, video on demand meant literally that they had a few beta testers, and by a few, I mean maybe 100 people in New York City who had a special box set up in their home um, that would offer them an extremely limited collection of movies that they could watch on demand. So we would get basically a red light in the office over a title of a movie. Let's say it was Dirty Dancing, right? And it was like, okay... Mrs. Moskowitz wants to watch Dirty Dancing. Someone put in the tape. Um, (laughs) And that person was pretty much me most of the time because I was willing to put in the long hours. um, And oftentimes that was at like 2 in the morning where I'd camp out in the office and, you know, I'd get the red light and put the tape in. But it was great. And and that really did open up a lot of doors for me and launched me to where I eventually ended up um, right out of school, which was Turner Broadcasting. One internship led to the next, and that was an internship at, at CNN, which is where I really wanted to be. Um, and I spent, uh, I spent summers during college in Atlanta um, at Turner Broadcasting headquarters, learning different parts of the business as an intern, which was invaluable to me. And that sort of got me my first job out of school, which was with Turner Broadcasting. Right. Was that in New York or was that in Atlanta? No, that was in Asia. I was sent right out of school. I was 21 years old um, and uh, I knew I wanted to be overseas. Um, I knew I wanted to be in the international division of Turner Broadcasting specifically because that business was growing so rapidly um, that it just seemed really exciting. And CNN was already a known quantity. It was already kind of a big thing, but still growing like crazy. And overseas, it was growing even faster. And I knew I wanted to be there. Um, I was pitching for that job um, to get sent overseas. And at that time, the only real uh, base that Turner Broadcasting had overseas was in London. 
Um, so I actually got the job um, to be uh, an account executive in, on the ad sales team in London. Um, but at the last minute before I moved, uh, I got a call saying, hey, uh, there's a job opening uh, to open up the office in Hong Kong where we're going to establish a, a foothold for Asia. Would you like to go and do that instead? And I jumped at the chance, and, and uh, a couple weeks later, I was in Hong Kong. Wow. So you mentioned something there about wanting to go to where the most amount of growth was. And, you know, is that something that's – I mean, I don't think that everyone does that. Like, it's cool to go after, you know, high growth, people like working at startups and things like that. But I don't know that everyone – would just move to Asia to go or London to go work for the fastest growing thing. Has that been an asset for you in your career, chasing growth like that? Absolutely. I think that's, that's been the, the common thread um, through everything that I've done um, has been chasing growth and, and chasing ideas, chasing industries, chasing even geographies that are um, sort of ripe for growth or already starting to show a, a glimmer of growth. Um, and then jumping on that wave. Sure. So not putting uncertainty ahead of opportunity. Absolutely. Because yeah. what's the worst that can happen? Right. You fail and you move back to outside of New York. And That's right. Right. You've got all these internships. You've got experience. This is some of the, something that I, I like to talk about on this podcast a lot. Is like what's the worst that can happen? If you leave your job at Bain and you want to go try a startup and you – fail. Well, I'm going to tell you, you probably learned a tremendous amount and you know, you'll be able to get another job, right? Like you, you've already worked yeah. at Bain, like you have right. new skills. So people put these like ideas in their head that, Oh, I'm going to be homeless. Everyone's going to leave me. I'm going to have no friends, no family. It's, if, as long as you're learning, it's not quite like, I don't see it as being quite like that. Yeah. It's never like that. I mean, you're right. The worst that can happen is you walk away a lot smarter and you walk away with a set of experiences that not many people get to have. Sure. Okay. So you moved to Asia. You're opening a new office. What was that like? That was amazing. Um, and uh, in hindsight, amazing um, that, uh, number one, that I got to do it at such a young age. Um, and number two, that, you know, today something like that would never happen. I think, you know, most... Uh, businesses are uh, global by nature and, and global much faster than they were 20 years ago. Um, so the thought of sending a kid, and I was a kid, the thought of sending a kid who had no Asia experience, no language experience, um, and uh, no relevant job experience other than a few internships to a market like Asia it just wouldn't happen today. Um, and so for me, it was great because I had to, I had to build networks very quickly and learn how to do that. I say it was great in hindsight. It was terrifying. Um, it was exciting, but terrifying. Um, and, uh, and it was the toughest job I thought I, I would ever have in that uh, there was very little direction. I was half a world away from uh, my bosses um, and, uh, and really had to figure things out quickly and figure things out on my own. Um, and mind you, these are sort of just pre-internet days. Like we started using um, email regularly probably two years into 
um, my stint at Turner. So when I, re- I remember when I was just setting up and the office got set up, every night I had to stay very late. Um, but the last thing I had to do was to make sure the fax machine was full of paper um, because the next morning, inevitably, the floor would be covered with, uh, with papers, um, sort of responding to stuff I was asking about and, um, and answering all of my questions and sort of marching orders for the, the, the day or the week ahead. That's, that's interesting. I think the fax machine here is out of paper, and it's that siren <laughs> that, that we're hearing. <laughs> probably, yeah. That's probably, that's probably it. Is there really a fax machine here? I doubt it. It's angry. Uh, I doubt it. Always have, always great. That's just how things work. If I'm at home doing this, my dog is 100% going to be barking right in the middle of this. Okay, so you're in this super undefined role. Like your bosses all are across the world. That's that's like so challenging. From you know, you're, you're young. I, I I don't even like. How did you? So how did you just start? Like putting one foot in front of the other, getting there. There's language barriers. I mean, there's a whole new way of life and culture and that's 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 incredible peter that you were able to just go there and just start well that part is a really long story and can be probably a a podcast or two on on its own but um in a nutshell they you know the 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 signals existed there the networks existed cnn was already in asia when i was there so there was a signal um the the u.s coverage um, was simultaneously beamed to to Asia and Europe and, and Latin America. Um, so the signal was there. We were a known quantity. We had some cable carriage um, on domestic operators around the region. Um, but there wasn't a firm, uh, uh, a firm established business yet. And so part of what I had to do was... Um, Work with local cable operators and um, and essentially sell what we what we were offering. So make sure that we had long term arrangements in place with cable operators, and then the the real revenue driver of the business um, was ad sales. Um, so I was helping to set up an ad sales network and ad sales operation of um, some of our own folks who we ended up hiring, um, but also. Uh, local and domestic ad reps uh, around the region. So I was working with hiring and and partnering with uh, local ad reps um, everywhere from from Korea to Japan to to Indonesia and and Thailand on down to Australia. So it was busy and I was traveling a lot, but it, it was just the most phenomenal experience and and great to be part of a very entrepreneurial, high growth business, but have the safety net of being at a corporate. Sure. Yeah, that's a, you're right. That's something nice to have. But, you know, inside of you is this startup spirit, this entrepreneurship. So, I mean, no matter what the skills are and how great it is working for someone else, like you probably had it inside of you that you were going to go do something for yourself someday, right? Yeah, that was always that that was always the the dream. Um, that was always the plan. But it's funny how, you know, life can sort of start to uh, unfold on its own, right? And, uh, and I found myself probably about seven or eight years in um, feeling a bit antsy and feeling worried um, that I hadn't started anything on my own yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, one job sort of led to another, and the, the, the Turner Broadcasting thing was great, 
Um, Time Warner came into the mix at a certain point um, and acquired Turner Broadcasting. And I started working in, around the company and in other roles and ended up um, landing at Time Inc., the publishing arm of Time Warner, um, and running a big part of that business unit for uh, probably three, four years. And I hit my early 30s and thought, okay, this is great. I love it here. Um, but when am I actually going to start my own thing? Um, and I figured, um, you know, at, at a certain point, I figured now is as good a time as any to start looking really seriously at, at what I could do. Okay. Um, and that's sort of what led me to uh, to starting my own business with with a couple of, of co-founders. Okay, I'd, I'd like to hear about that. I mean, this is just like anything else. Starting a business is similar to anything else. It requires practice and thinking about ideas, and rarely are you successful on your first one. So I'd love to hear about how that went. Well, um, there's sort of the long story and the short story, but I'll tell you the medium version okay. of the story, um, and that is that... Um, I, I also got lucky in that, in that um, a, an opportunity kept on presenting itself. Um, during the, the sort of end of my time at Time Warner, uh, I didn't know it was going to be the end, but um, AOL came into the mix. Uh, and AOL Time Warner as a newly emerged entity was um, was looking at uh, geographies around the world and sort of mapping out where it could grow through acquisition. And China became uh, a front and center geography for the company to look at. And there were a handful of us in Asia who were running different business units um, and sort of tasked on the side with generating deal flow and looking at opportunities for the company. And I started to see this pattern over and over of interesting ad-supported companies in China um, that were um, through a, an opening up of some regulations in China able to be acquired because um, that's always hard in China is how do you actually acquire an asset as, a, as an offshore company. Mm -hmm. um, these companies were able to be acquired but not necessarily big enough or attractive enough for the likes of a Time Warner or a News Corp or a Disney to go out and do the diligence and acquire. Not big enough, sizes of around maybe 10 to $15 million in enterprise value. Um, and, uh, and yet, to me, uh, they showed a lot of promise. A lot of companies that I started looking at um, and deals that I was brought were looking really interesting, but not to Time Warner, just to me. Um, and so uh, with a, a couple of friends who became my co-founders, um, we started actually doing some diligence on these companies and moonlighting nights and weekends and just kind of like going up to, to Beijing and going to Shanghai and meeting some founders and, and, um, and talking about business plans. And um, finally, we decided, you know, actually, we could, we could raise a little bit of money and acquire one or two things. Right. Um, and that's what we did. We ended up... Uh, Leaving our jobs, I was I was still at Time Warner, but uh, but left. And my, one of my co-founders was at News Corp and was running business development there on the ground in China, and and left to join me. Um, and another co-founder was uh, an internet 
1.0 entrepreneur who had the experience of raising venture capital right. and structuring deals and um, and working on acquisitions. So that was invaluable to us. Um, so the three of us uh, went up to Beijing, um, bought a small content publishing company, and that sort of became the the, the backbone of the business that the first business that we built. Wow, that's pretty interesting. So how long between when you left? Time Warner and you went and bought this company. How long how long was that? Well, I'm sure my former bosses aren't listening to this. I hope they're not. But uh, we actually did a lot of the work before we left our jobs. Right, which is and the smart thing to do. Yeah. So we we did most of the heavy lifting before we actually left our jobs. Right. We even got some soft commitments on raising. We didn't have to raise that much capital because it didn't it didn't cost that much to acquire the first business that we acquired, and we also committed our own capital to doing so. Um, so between the time I left Time Warner and the time we actually inked the first acquisition was probably about a month. Wow, that's that's great. Yeah, I mean, you de-risked it significantly, significantly yeah. while you still have your job, and then, all right, let's go do it. Okay? Yeah. I love that. So, yeah, let's get through this next period here. So I spent a lot of time on the early days because it was so interesting. But, okay, so you're, now you're going and buying content publishing businesses around Asia. Uh, just specifically around China. Around so China. We, um, we ended up decamping. Well, I did. I was in Hong Kong, but ended up spending the majority of my time in Beijing, um, which is where our our company was headquartered. Um, we had acquired one company. We rapidly acquired a handful of additional companies um, that were all publishing magazines and online content as well. Um, we also then, uh, alongside that, uh, worked on building partnerships with a handful of Western uh, multinational content publishers like the BBC um, like Time Inc. Actually, we, we brought a, a Time Inc. title into China. Um, we brought Top Gear, which is an automotive um, title from BBC, into China. We launched Rolling Stone in China um, and uh, quickly uh, built um, uh, a business from one magazine, which we acquired, uh, which was the initial acquisition, to nine titles within about a year and a half. Um, and then alongside that, we were already having conversations with an old school Hong Kong newspaper and magazine publisher, which had a pretty big business, didn't have a very big foothold in mainland China. Um, but we ended up merging our operations with their operations, taking control of a combined asset, um, which had a, a really great cash flow business of, of a legacy business in Hong Kong. And we spun that off and took it public. So that, that time duration between the time I left my job and my co-founders left theirs to actually taking a, a company public was about three years. That's so fast. That's in, it's incredible. And how old are you at this point? Uh, 34. Wow, that's great. It was, it, was, it was great. Again, in hindsight, it was a white-knuckled ride. Yeah. Um, and, and a lot of mistakes were made um, before, during, and after uh, that process. But, uh, but I wouldn't trade it. Sure. I mean, this sounds like an incredible learning experience. So what did you learn and what did you take away from this incredible learning experience that started to set you up for, for what was next? 
Well, what came next was that we kind of got ahead of ourselves because we took that company public, um, and um, and then we were we were saddled with um, running a public company, um, and we still had a, a private company parent structure sitting on top of it where we had flexibility to go buy other things. Um, I was essentially running two companies at that point because I was CEO of the public company, um, but I was also CEO of the of the private entity that my co-founders and I had established. And th- these are where the learnings, the first big learnings came in. Because we now had a bit of a track record, um, because we had some good press on being able to, to build a company pretty quickly, um, we had pretty good access to capital and we took advantage of that and we raised a bunch of capital um, to go off and uh, outside of the public company the public company now was sort of off to the races and growing Um, but in the in the private company we raised a bunch more capital and decided hey this entrepreneur thing is is pretty great and we're we're doing this pretty well so uh, let's go off and 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 bulk up um, and let's go buy some assets that aren't in the publishing Space. Let's go buy, um, you know, TV stations, radio stations, billboard companies, um, and let's piece together a much bigger ad network around China. Okay. And uh, and it was a bold plan. We ended up raising some money and making some acquisitions and uh, and building very very quickly. Uh, and getting into a pattern um, towards a public offering which we had targeted to do here in the U.S. Um, and that was around the time of the financial crisis in 2008. Um, nobody gives you a playbook on what to do as a founder when you have to put down pencils on an IPO, which is well underway, um, and, uh, and do so because your banks are no longer doing deals. Um, basically what happened was the, the two banks that we had uh, taking us out to take us public um, both fired their entire media banking teams overnight, literally. So we had to, we had to stop. Right. That's unfortunate, but I mean, yeah, I'm sure during the moment you're like, wow, you know, my life has been so great. I've done, accomplished so much. And now, like, what's going to happen now? Is it all going to come crumbling down? So in the moment, it had to be very, very difficult. But as any entrepreneur does, you figure out a way to make it happen, right? So I'm going to guess you still went public somehow, some way. Yes, we did. But we did so uh, almost five years later Okay. Um, with a lot more gray hairs um, between us. Yeah. Um, and, um, and yet... That's where we really learned how to be operators um, and to be nimble. Uh, to be honest, uh, I think uh, life had gone pretty well up to that point, as you mentioned, um, for all of us. And certainly business had gone very well. Um, but we had been in growth mode and we had been ac- in acquisition mode. And there's a big difference between acquiring assets and acquiring earnings um, and operating. And when, um, when the crisis hit is when we really learned how to be operators. That's when we figured out that we had bulked up too quickly. We had to sell some assets. Um, We had to shutter a couple of businesses too. Um, We pared down to the core business and sort of navigated through the storm. 
um, and yes, ended up listing the company in Hong Kong nearly five years later in a very unglamorous series of transactions, uh, but it got done. Right. Okay. So are you out of, are you out of Hong Kong after this one? Uh, no, I, I stuck around Hong Kong. Um, I was uh, still on a couple of boards um, and uh, still am on a couple of boards. Um, but at the time, I was thinking of what I wanted to do next. Um, and I, logically, after you have a couple of exits, right, it's the same, I, I think, through all of our industry where um, there's, there's a lot of inbound advice that comes through. Um, and a lot of folks were saying, so you're going to be an investor now, right? Is that what you're going to do? And I, I, I kind of went along with that saying, sure, yeah, I guess that's what I'm going to do. But I didn't really know what that meant, to right. be honest. And, um, and I certainly knew that um, being a venture investor in China was not something that I wanted to do. I'd spent, uh, at that point, seven or eight years mostly in Beijing, um, and life in Beijing as a foreigner is, is great in many ways, and I loved uh, different aspects of it, but business life in Beijing is tough, and I just kind of realized that I wanted to explore more, I wanted to learn, and if I was going to be an investor and, and wanted to sort of check out what that meant, I needed to learn. Um, and that's when I started hopping on planes and spending more time in the Bay Area, in New York, and, and here in Los Angeles as well. Okay. Uh, so you grew up in New York. You still, do you still have family in New York when you were, when you were in? That's, yes. That, that's where yeah. you were? Yeah, family's all on the East Coast. Okay. So then you're coming back to America. You want to get into this investing thing. I assume it's more on the early side, early stage side investing. It's... Yeah, I mean, that's, that's really the stage that I, I've grown to love. Um, well, it's chasing growth. It's, it's chasing growth, exactly. And, um, you know, I think there's, there's, there's huge benefit to being a, a late-stage investor because you're, you're de-risked to a, uh, to, to a large degree. Um, but company formation and those early days, um, certainly as a founder myself, was, um, was the most fun I had, um, but also uh, it's – it's like anything else. It's what sets you up for success. Right. And, um, and I wanted to learn how to be a good early stage investor and what that entailed. I'd had my own experiences with, with angels that invested in our business and a few early stage folks, um, institutions that invested in our business. Um, but I wanted to learn um, really here in, in California from some of the best people. Sure. And um, and that's what I ended up doing. I picked up and moved here. And my thesis was not only could I learn, but my thesis was um, Bay Area is always going to be the uh, bastion of innovation. It's always going to be the epicenter of funding for innovation and for new ideas, but that uh, other ecosystems were going to become increasingly important. And, um, and at the time I started visiting L.A., that was probably about five or six years ago when I started visiting here regularly, um, I smelled an emerging market. And, um, and L.A. is very different than, um, than it was even five short years ago. 
Um, but it had all the glimmerings of what it is today, which is really a vibrant, great, um, smart investing community with people from diverse backgrounds who have come here to to build great things. Yeah, well, I love that story. So, Peter, two more questions, and then we'll be done. You've started these businesses. You're white knuckling it and pushing your head up against the wall and breaking down walls. How do you get that kind of fulfillment now in your life? Like, how do you fulfill yourself on the investing side? Well, I think you know where where we spend our time and where I spend my time with. Uh, companies who are in that earliest stage, who are at seed or pre-seed stage, um, as a as an entrepreneur, because I still think of myself as an entrepreneur, uh, you do get to scratch that itch. You know, we like to partner with uh, early stage, scrappy entrepreneurs who are figuring things out. Um, and when I say partner with, I mean really work alongside them and. Um, you know, I like to say make new mistakes together um, because there's always going to be mistakes made, but hopefully we can avoid you know some mistakes that, that I've made in the past. Um, but really to you roll up sleeves and, and get involved in the businesses and that's you know that sort of scratches the itch for me and, and does it at scale because I can work now with a larger portfolio of entrepreneurs right. all at the same time. You can be scratching many itches. Yeah. Well, that's cool to hear. Okay, so last question. The advice component. You're graduating from college again. What are you? Do, what are you doing differently? Are you still going to Asia? Are you still doing these? I mean, your life's gone pretty good. So, but like, what do you tell someone who's starting off today? Well, I think one um, one bit of advice that I would definitely offer is no matter what, to to find ways to become interesting. If you're not interesting already, make yourself interesting. And, um, and that could be um, picking up and chasing growth. It could be moving to a different market. And that doesn't mean moving halfway across the world, but it might mean you know, moving from uh, New York to Detroit, um, or it might mean moving from West Coast to East Coast. Um, it might mean taking that job at a smaller company that's going to give you a ton more experience, but maybe with a lot more risk attached. I would say certainly at a young age, absolutely take the risk. You have very, very little to lose and tons to gain even if you do lose. Cool. I love, love that piece of advice. Peter, this was so much fun speaking with you. I love the story. Thanks for doing it. My pleasure. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening today. As always, I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, tell your friends and... Leave us a five-star review on iTunes. Thank you.